0: You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation.
1: Hello, I am Mark Inatpanhouse,
0: and I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to the Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Hi, Mark. What have you got for us today?
1: Hi Leo, today I want to talk about enterprise bargaining and this is a general term that is defined as the process of negotiation between the employer, employees and their bargaining representatives with the goal of making an enterprise agreement. At universities in Australia, This involves negotiations between senior management representatives such as the Vice-Chancellor or Deputy Vice-Chancellor on one side and union representatives on the other side. Employees are generally asked to vote on negotiated options. The term of these agreements is generally around three years and each university will usually have about two of these agreements. One for professional staff members and one for academic staff members. However, most managers, such as deans of faculty and above, are not included in these agreements. They usually negotiate their own contract. Negotiations are generally very lengthy. Think months, sometimes year or longer, due to the perks involved, such as sabbatical leave, parental leave, academic freedom, workload annual leave and pay increases. And interestingly, for academics, the number of working hours is always vaguely defined. There is a provision for overtime, but that's only for professional staff members, not for academics. And this is very briefly an overview of enterprise bargaining.
0: Oh, well, definitely a topic that crosses over from research into the business world. So, I mean, enterprise bargaining, you mentioned there, it's, it's about unionization, I guess, the representation of the staff, staff groups to management. How, did, how far apart are these enterprise bargaining agreements from, I guess, the standard minimum wage conditions that are government legislated?
1: They're very far apart. They're documents that have pages and pages. And obviously, we're dealing with salary <coughs> scales that are much above what the minimum wage is in Australia.
0: Yeah, and I guess in terms of the conduct of these negotiations, who decides, I guess, who represents the staff? What, what is the unionization process like
1: there? That's a very interesting process because obviously not everybody is a, is a member of the, of the union. For example, I'm not a union member, but I do not really have a say in that. If I wish to have a say in that, I would have to join a union. I'm not exactly sure what the proportion of staff is that is a member of a union, but generally these negotiations evolve between the university management and union representatives. And anybody that is not a member of the union will have to vote, can only put their opinion forward when they vote on the agreement that is presented to them as negotiated between union representatives and the management. And,
0: I mean, if for whatever reason you don't like the terms of this agreement... Do you, is there a fallback to a government legislated agreement or can you negotiate your own terms? or is no, it?
1: You, you, once, once we, I can be very brief about that. The answer is no. Once the university puts a proposal forward for an enterprise agreement, then all staff members are asked to cast a vote and the vote is binding. So if I say vote against an agreement, that's tough luck for me. If it gets the majority of my colleagues' vote in favour of it, I will be bound by that agreement. I
0: guess you can always leave your job, but that's...
1: That's a different, <laughs> that's a totally different uh, yeah, piece of cake. Not piece of cake, but something like that.
0: All right, well, thanks for covering that enterprise bargaining topic. Shall we move on to... Yeah, what have you got, Leo? I've, I've got valuation, which is a... it's On the one hand, it's a very easy topic to define. Um, on the other hand, it's it's quite difficult in how it applies to startups. So... Put simply, valuation is the total value of a company's outstanding shares at market rates. For a publicly traded company, you can simply multiply the number of shares on issue, by the stock price, and hey presto, you have a valuation for the company. But just because a company has a price, it does not mean that price is reasonable, and the share market is full of companies trading wildly above or below what might be considered their intrinsic value. So what is fair value. Again, for established companies, like those in the stock market, fair value can be determined by a discounted cash flow analysis. This means making a projection about the company's future profits, accounting for business risks, and determining the net present value of those discounted earnings, which then become its fair valuation. But applying this method to startup businesses is almost impossible. In most cases, startup businesses are in a state of flux. Their projections about the company's future simply aren't reliable enough to plug into a mathematical calculation. So instead, startup investors generally work off experience and rules of thumb. Some rely on checklists of development milestones like the Burkus method, while others simply have an accepted range of valuations for each stage of funding, from seed through to VC. Investors will try to view a deal through multiple valuation lenses before committing to a price. And at the end of the day, startup valuations remain a dark art, and there will always be room for negotiation in determining the fair value of a startup.
1: Okay, so you mentioned something about the difference between an actual value and an intrinsic value of a company. Have you got any examples?
0: I mean... Right now, companies like Tesla on the US stock market are trading at price-to-earnings multiples of 50 to 100 times, which means that for every dollar they're earning, the price is 50 times that. And if they did not grow, you would expect it to take 50 years for you to get your money back on that investment. So that is a company that is highly valued at the moment. You You can't say for sure at the moment if that is unfair because they might grow into that. Other times in history, you know, the classic example it's often given is the poppy craze um, in, the, I think this is the 1700s in the Netherlands. And at that time, you know, a poppy would cost you as much as a, as a car does now, equivalently. Um, it was just mania around purchasing these things for way above any, you know, intrinsic value that they actually had. So there are certainly times when markets have gotten way out of proportion. The dot-com boom um, just before the global financial crisis. Um, it, it certainly happens on stock exchanges.
1: And, and what is Burke's method in one sentence?
0: Um, it is basically a set of milestones a company can achieve, like having a good team in place, having the product develop, having initial revenue from customers, and each of those kind of tap on extra value to the, your startup. So if you've only got you know, one of the five items, you're only worth half a million dollars. If you've got all five, you might be worth two and a half million dollars. It's a rough rule of thumb for valuing an early stage startup.
1: And you mentioned something that is called discounted cash flow analysis. Yeah. What, what is the, the, the term discount?
0: So discount is a way that they refer to the process of adding in the risks that are perceived in the business. So you've gone ahead, you've done your projections on the future earnings of that business based on your best guess. Um, and you could just do a net present value analysis on that and bring it back and get a dollar value for your investment. But there's always going to be risk to this business and some are more volatile than others. Some have more risk than others. So you you take what you projected to be their future earnings and you deduct 20% or 30% or 40% based on how risky the business looks. And that is the number that you bring back to, to get a fair value of today's earnings. If your projections are correct in terms of the future earnings of the business, then your returns on that investment will be your discount rate. So whatever... Your risk modifier you put into this valuation is what you will get back out in investment returns if your projections were correct.
1: And what are the risks for a company if they're overvalued in terms in the views of an investor? Could that mean their cash flow or investments could dry up?
0: So, I mean, it's almost always beneficial for a company to be overvalued from the perspective of the company because they can issue shares for a high price and get a lot of new money into the business. Um, from the perspective view of an investor, you know you, you are on the other side of that deal and you stand to lose if the company's valuation returns to fair value um, from that point. It can be the case that a company is overvalued and it becomes more overvalued over time and you will still gain as an early investor in that company. Um, so it's not always the case that buying an overvalued company means you will lose money, but ultimately economic gravity does affect all these businesses and Ultimately, uh, companies do return to close to their intrinsic value over the long term.
1: I like that term, economic gravity.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you can't can't defy it forever.
1: (laughs) And, And that's probably all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. See you next time.